Well, hello everyone. Thank you so much for joining our discussion today on managing emerging uh, technologies in the marketplace and in our workplace. My name is Tiffany Alexander and I'm gonna be your esteemed moderator for our discussion today. So the format of today's discussion is gonna be just more of a um, kind of hot topics discussion between um, the four, it's actually the five of us. Um, one of our panelists is actually coming from another uh, discussion, our panel discussion prior to this, so she'll be here a few minutes late. Her name is D-O-N. Um, but then we'll, we'll give time for Q&A. So if you do have questions, I encourage you to save them um, because we do want to hear from you. Um, and so it would be a great conversation. So um, without further ado, um, I want to introduce, or I want to let my uh, esteemed colleagues um, introduce themselves. They're Amazon leaders with Ama um, Amazon leaders in the tech space. And so they have some exciting things to share about their own career journeys and being a woman in tech. Hi, everyone. Thanks for being here. Uh, my name is Tanvi Patel. I'm a director of Amazon Pharmacy at Amazon. I've been at Amazon 12 years, um, have held multiple roles and launched a bunch of different really cool products at Amazon. Uh, and I'm happy to talk more about that as we go through here. Hey, everyone. My name is Pooja Dave. Um, I've been with Amazon three years, and I'm a senior product manager. Hi, my name is Bailing Yin. I am a senior research science manager in a division called Core AI at Amazon. So basically, that sounds better than it really is. Um, we're, we're actually central econ. We act as an internal consulting for Amazon, and I've been at Amazon for two and a half years. And I am a principal diversity, equity, and inclusion leader for Amazon. I'm actually celebrating my two-year anniversary um, in two weeks. So super excited to, to be here and be along this journey. Specifically, the work that I do and many of my colleagues that are actually here today, um, we really focus on driving more um, diversity and representation within our orgs. Um, we try to strive to have more equity, um, whether it's opportunities, um, compensation, and just overall um, experiences, and then really driving inclusion for all, um, you know, being in the tech space, it can be dominated by a one gender or and or race. And so really trying to diversify that is a huge drive in the work that we do. And that's one of the reasons why we're here today. So um, without further ado, I'm going to jump right into our questions and answers with our uh, panelists and I'm excited to get started. So tell me, um, you know, you all have shared you are um, at Amazon, you're in this space of, of, of AA. Tell us a little about your career journeys. We'd love to hear that. Yeah, I'll get it started. Uh, so I started out as a management consultant doing a lot of M&A work in the media and telecom space in the early 2000s. And then I worked at MTV Networks for several years, and then I joined Amazon in 2011 when we were just a teeny little company. Um, not that many people. We were. Uh, still kind of starting out in many things beyond core retail at the time. AWS had just started. Uh, I had joined a, a program called Amazon Local. Maybe some of you had heard of it. It was our version of Groupon and Living Social. It no longer exists, but it was our way of getting into local commerce and really understand local shopping behaviors outside of online shopping behaviors. After launching Amazon Local in about seven countries, uh, I went on to the devices space, launched Fire Phone, which no longer also exists, but a great learning experience and a lot of fun to launch, um, Fire TV and the Echo devices, which many of you hopefully have in your homes. And that's really where a lot of our um, AI journey started outside of, you know, core ML on shopping recommendations or maybe the 
course form of when you think about machine learning and not just if you like this, you'll like that, but really learning with the way that uh, folks are shopping. And these guys can talk a lot more about that space. From there, I went on to launch Prime Now, which was our two hour delivery uh, in many countries, many states. We started with New York City in 2014. Uh, we bought Whole Foods in 2017 and I led the integration of Whole Foods into our company, which is um, largely the delivery and pickup service that you'd get from Whole Foods was led by myself and my team. Uh, Amazon Style after that, which uh, got much, much more uh, technically adept with shopping in a physical store, ML-powered uh, fashion styling, making it accessible for more and more customers to get styled where you know many folks times when you think about fashion styling, you thought it was really only for those who could afford a personal stylist, but we made it accessible and affordable and really made that available to all. Uh, and then I was, uh, well, we have a technical advisor roles at Amazon. So I spent a year shadowing and advising our global leader for Amazon physical stores and grocery. And for the last year, I've been leading Amazon Pharmacy and really seeing where Amazon gets into healthcare. We have several different initiatives in healthcare. We bought one medical earlier this year, so we're doing prime primary care, we have a marketplace for um, care through Amazon Clinic, and a full-service pharmacy. I can go next. I started my career in semiconductors, primarily defining, helping define USB-C power products. Uh, quickly pivoted into software, where I was working with software as a service startups in HR tech and marketing tech as industries. Um, then I started transitioning to big tech, uh, for larger impact opportunities and global launches where I was working with mobile ad products at Google and uh, moved into Amazon where I started my career in people technologies, um, helped build uh, assessments. If you apply at Amazon, some of you will encounter Amazon assessments. Um, and then pivoted into marketing. So I was working on the homepage team where uh, the first thing that you see is the top banner. So making sure you're seeing the most relevant content that Amazon wants to show you at the right time. Um, and now I'm working in an org called Personalization, the mission for which is uh, to make sure that we have tailored experiences to show you relevant content and products in the right place at the right time. Uh, so I actually started in academics. I was trained as an economist, and I did my PhD at Stanford. Um, and then I went and taught in business school. So I taught at Harvard Business School uh, teaching strategy. Then I went to MIT, and I taught technology and strategy. Um, I went back to Stanford during the mobile app era to examine that industry, which led me back to Stanford. And then that led me into thinking about entrepreneurship, because we had all these Little, little tiny businesses starting up apps, even just individuals, not even businesses. Um, so I ended up at University of Southern California, um, and I was happily doing my academic thing, and then COVID hit. Um, and at that point, I thought, hey, it would be interesting maybe to um, see where I'm sending off these legions of MBAs. So I ended up uh, taking a job with my old advisor, who at the time was chief economist at Amazon to work in, as I said, this little internal consulting uh, branch of Amazon. And so uh, I've been just learning a lot, actually, about working in the private sector and practicing what I used to preach to my students. 
Good morning, everyone. I'm Dia Wen, and I like to start my my journey of my career a little earlier. So for me, it was the third grade. That's when I received my first computer at a time where we didn't have computers in our homes, right? We, we, we have now more computing power in our pockets than I had in my very first computer. But it was in the third grade, that technology exposure for me, that actually shaped what I do today. Because of that, I decided I was going to be a computer engineer. And I kept that interest, that eight-year-old girl set the stage or uh, the trajectory for my life because I actually went to college in Atlanta, Georgia at Spelman to study uh, computer science and computer engineering. And I've been in technology ever since. My early uh, career started with me uh, working in early stage companies, actually helping to transform their products for acquisition. And then I moved into uh, data centers uh, and management of like core infrastructure and systems that manage the infrastructure for our data centers, which is what actually led me into the cloud. And then uh, about uh, six and a half years ago, moved to Amazon. So my early stage uh, at Amazon was um, actually uh, managing our op uh, some operating model transformation. So helping enterprises understand what they needed to do to really ready their organizations for that cloud transformation or that cloud transition. And then about four years ago, I got a, an inch to sort of uh, reinvent myself and uh, to move into an area of technology that there wasn't a lot of representation, but I realized that it was huge and was going to have a an, huge impact in our, on our career, on our existence, and that is in the area of AI. And so I started a practice focused on responsible AI, uh, which was with the intention of helping our customers, who we have hundreds of thousands of customers that are using our technology to build AI products. And I wanted to make sure that they were doing those in ways that were inclusive and, and responsible and, and was able to start a practice and have been working in that area for three and a half years, actually focused on transforming the way in which we work with AI uh, and what that means in terms of our life and our impact and its impact. Awesome. Really, I really appreciate just about uh, these introductions as to what the career path is, the diversity of the career path in the tech space. And so for those of us who are in the room who are thinking about technology, who are already in the tech space, there's so many opportunities. Um, and I'm even more excited to hear more about our conversation. So as we think about, you know, the different organizations you all support, how are you seeing AI specifically being used in your organization or how is it even being used? And we'll start with Bailing. Uh, yeah, so um, uh, again, as I mentioned, we're consulting with an economic lens. And so there are a lot of models in economics which once you match them with machine learning, all of a sudden it's like you're, you're giving them a, a super-powered shot, right? So actually what we're doing is taking the basic models that you, know, you might have encountered in high school about supply and demand and how you think about those things and then just ramping that up with big data in a way that, that at least when I was doing my graduate studies, we couldn't do. Like we couldn't estimate these things about, about the world. Um, so that's one way in which we use uh, machine learning in particular. And basically, I, I think of that as just statistics. Um, the second way in which we use it is, is our group also has a little computer vision 
area. So they're actually using machine learning to help them understand what are they seeing in images. And I, I think we're, we've seen a lot of stuff about generative AI and how it's, it's, it's quite powerful in the image space. Um, and I think the third way that we see our partners in particular using um, machine learning as well in large language models is trying to take the idea of understanding and, and, and figuring out insights from um, perhaps our sellers who are commenting about what's going on and being able to do that at scale, right? So you, you don't want to let yourself be swayed by a simple anecdote. You wanna know, is, is this story that this person telling me something that a lot of people share? Is that just like a little, little tiny group of people or maybe that little group of people has particular needs? So this ability to take an anecdote and figure out whether it, it's, it's the right story that you're hearing from everyone or just a few people, and if, if those few people, what are their characteristics so we can help those people? That's how we're seeing people use uh, technology. Awesome, thank you. Dia, I'd love to hear from you and how, you kind of shared a little bit earlier, but do you want well, to elaborate? Well, I, I, I get to see a lot of use cases actually, um, and it's a little different because I am not a direct user of it, although I am. All of us are. We are using AI every day. I tell people that all the time. Um, anyone that doesn't think that they're using AI is a little jaded because every day we use AI, whether we're using writing text messages, emails, searching on the web, trying to figure out what we're going to watch on, on TV or streaming, we're all using AI. So, so we, we use it, but, but I get to see some very unique or I wouldn't say unique, I get to see a number of use cases across an, uh, almost every industry because companies are thinking about ways in which they can leverage it to optimize their existing uh, processes, uh, to be able to look at predictions like you were talking about. Um, one of the cool things was like in the on the West Coast, you know, an energy provider uh, being able to try to uh, reduce um, the the number of uh, forests, the fires, the wildfires that were getting out of control, some of which are coming as a result of maintenance issues, you know, when they're in dry seasons. And so using uh, AI in order to be able to, as well as the computer vision, in order to be able to understand like the conditions um, of certain equipment to be able to reduce the number of, of wildfires that are occurring as a result of maintenance. And that's just one example, but I, but I, I see a number both on you know, the side where people are actually looking for opportunities to use AI for good like that one, or just interested in helping them innovate or do something interesting, you know, in a space where, you know, they want to be able to compete and have an advantage. Um, I, I'm seeing I'm seeing a little bit a little bit of everything. Some simple, and and then with the from a the perspective of generative AI, most folks are thinking about that in the context of of uh, internal use cases first, because actually those are the ones that I recommend they start with, because they have a more contained environment with which they can um, control the results as well as test and and evaluate the response before they go out into the public. That's interesting. Pooja, um, what are your thoughts on this? How are you seeing this in your space? Yeah, I, I can speak uh, very specifically about shopping applications. Um, and in, because of the nature of being a part of an organization that's full of applied scientists, um, I, I, can, I can shine some light on a very specific example. Um, Amazon's recently made a foray into um, an Instagram-like feed where customers can shop based on their interests. Um, and we're surfacing uh, influencer content. And for those who didn't know, uh, influencers can create content on Amazon. Yeah. 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 Um, so when you're uh, when you're 
when you're on a, a form factor of a mobile, there's only one or two pieces of content that you can see at a time. And we want to try and make sure that whatever you see in the first 10 pieces of content, if you're in your cycling feed or hiking feed or fashion, that you're seeing the most impactful and relevant content that you're likely to interact with or like or um, consume. So we have a, a lot of complex ranking models behind the scenes to make sure that customers see a diverse set of um, content from different influencers, but at the same time, it's highly relevant to the person that they are. So that's, that's uh, the most recent um, experience that we launched. And um, yeah, that's, that's how we're using AI. That's super interesting. So I don't know if we've shared this in the beginning, but like when you go to the Amazon web, a lot of the things we're talking about, this is all that you're seeing and it's they are responsible for some of that work. And so I think it's pretty cool when you kind of tie, connect that dot to kind of the mechanics, I would say, behind the scenes, the technology behind the scenes, but that's, we benefit from that as users. So I think that's also pretty cool and exciting. Tammy, I'll let you close us out on this, on this topic. Yeah, so uh, a lot of the stuff that was set up here, one of the things that we realized, you can use AI, you can use any of these LLMs to build um, uh, technologies that can be fun or additive, but really it comes down to impact because the opportunity is so vast. And where I work right now in healthcare, um, the opportunities are even greater, right? Because no one's really been able to impact this regulated industry for a very long time. So one of the examples I love to always share is the NIH published a report not too long ago about waste in the healthcare industry. And it is almost $700 billion of waste across the healthcare industry today, but $265 billion on administrative actions alone. And so that's an area that we're doing a lot in here with clinicians and pharmacists and really allowing all of these um, clinicians and pharmacists to work at the top of their license by automating with AI a lot of the administrative tasks so that they can have a lot more of that human touch with the patient when they're working with them. And so one really cool example about this is understanding a pharmacist or a clinician's voice. And so when a patient is in front of a one medical clinician and uh, they are having a conversation with them, you understand that you're pharmacist or your uh, provider is sending you a note or an email or a follow-up later. It could take that uh, clinician hours to pull that together through that conversation. But if the machine is generating that for them in terms of a template, they know how this conversation went. They understand how this um, clinician usually likes to speak to this patient. We understand the, the nuances of this patient. Then they're able to really get that started and cut out a lot of the early administrative tasks in terms of pulling in maybe medications that they're taking and where there might be adherence problems or where there may be interactions within the drugs that they're taking and understanding that patient's journey and get them there a lot faster. So that patient gets care, that clinician gets a human touch, and they get to get there a lot faster and see more patients throughout the day. Wow, that's pretty incredible, $700 billion. It is incredible. <laughs> that's what, they can give that to us, yeah. <laughs> that loss to us. Okay, so we've heard some of the benefits of AI and how you're using it in your workspaces. Um, you know, what are, what are the concerns? And I, I feel like a couple of you touched on a little bit um, in your explanation, but we'd love to kind of hear a little bit more specific on um, what are some of the concerns of the way AI is being used? And we'll start with Dia for that. 
Earth mods. It, so, so there, there are a number, <laughs> um, and and I'd say that as a technologist, I'm 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 optimistic about the technology and the opportunity that we have, but I also recognize that there are a number of risks that we need to manage in order to be able to fully benefit from the technology and to ensure that it is benefiting us all. And so one of the things that we often hear people talk about as it relates to AI is bias, and. And, and that essentially is the when we have some result that benefits one, uh, you know, demographic or one subgroup over another, or more than another, or might harm one group more than another, and and so that is one, you know, area of, of huge consideration. But when we think about other things as it relates to generative AI, and when we talk about AI sort of broadly, I'm talking about. Um, machine learning and other traditional or classical uh, ways that we implement artificial intelligence versus generative. What most people are more familiar with lately is ChatGPT. When we think of that particular application and some of the implications of generative AI, where we're creating new content, new images, new music, et cetera, those increase some of the areas of risk and create opportunities for us to have to look at this much more carefully. And so one of those we were just talking about in the other session was hallucinations. The fact that it will give you information that is seemingly right, but actually wrong. It's mm -hmm. not factual. Or, um, or where there are privacy concerns, where we, um, our information might be used in ways that were not originally intended or, or authorized. And then, you know, how do I then contain or control the use of that content if I believe it's rightfully mine, right? And that gets into questions of intellectual property. So some, a lot of what I get to do is touch on all of these sort of areas of complication or risk and help customers work through the things that they can put in place to be able to reduce those. So I just mentioned three, there are a number of others as well. Awesome. Pooja, um, what, are your, what do you think some of the areas are concerned? Um, I wanna double click on one of the areas that Dia talked about is uh, regarding bias. So AI doesn't exist by itself. Um, Practitioners have to feed, curate, collect, so collect, curate, feed data to train uh, these models. And there's a lot of power to those set of practitioners who, who make all of these decisions on what these models need to learn. Mm -hmm. And uh, what ends up happening is that more often than not, this data is modeled off of the world that we live in. And we live in an imperfect world. So all of the biases that exist in the real world get fed to the AI. We don't have an opportunity to create, uh, we have the opportunity to create an equitable being. Um, so I think the, the, there's a lot of power in the hands of the practitioners. Um, and that's also an opportunity to, to educate the practitioners uh, about, I guess, the history of humanity, um, a little bit of sociology, uh, ethics. So I think that's that's one risk because there's a lot of hands in the power of a lot of individuals. That's interesting that you say that. And I think about the purpose of this conference and just the diversity of the practitioners. It can actually speed that process much longer. I mean, much further ahead um, than having to teach right. versus yeah. your population is being representative of actually the world we live in. So that's pretty cool. 
yeah, and that that makes the case for more diverse people getting to become practitioners. Absolutely, absolutely. Candy, what about you? What are your thoughts around this? Yeah, so in healthcare, there are a lot of concerns around, you know, even just the example I gave earlier, um, many of you might have been thinking in terms of, well, then what about the data privacy, right? You think about your healthcare, who's listening, how's it being used? So that is something that every company has to use very responsibly. And, you know, at Amazon, we think about that very responsibly, data privacy, the security, how we're using it, what are we using, and certainly not um, being shared. And so from that standpoint, that's one of the things, if it's used haphazardly in the industry, it is going to become concerning and we won't all have the opportunity to really see through what this um, this powerful technology could do for healthcare as an industry. Uh, the other one that was kind of spoken about, you know, it's the whole garbage in, garbage out. When you think about it, it's not just about a lot of information that makes the model better, it's about good information that makes the model richer. And so we use uh, machine learning today to estimate, estimate uh, insurance pricing for pharmacy uh, for the drugs that you'd buy on Amazon Pharmacy. Because the one thing that's missing in healthcare today is price transparency. For some odd reason, we know how much a pencil is gonna cost before we check out, but you don't know how much your medications are gonna cost before you present your credit card. And so in that, you know, Amazon is trying to become more and more price transparent. And in order to do that, we need good information from insurance partners to be able to estimate that price before you check out. And every person's insurance is a different algorithm. No two people are created equal based on the insurance, your coverage, how much you're paying, your employer. There are just so many factors that go into it. And so we also, I mean, there can be dire consequences if it's not done right. If you get bad information in and you think a medication is gonna cost X and it actually costs like X times three, you don't get that medication on time, it delays your care. And so it's really, that's one of my concerns is making sure that we're, um, that the folks that, and the companies that are using this technology, that are using it correctly to make sure that we're getting what we should out of it because it does have consequences on people. Oh, that's so interesting. Riley, you wanna close us out on, on this particular topic? Yeah, I guess, uh, um, uh, you know, th this is an old story, but all technologies are just tools, right? So just even think of a knife. It does wonderful things. It cuts our food. We great, make great meals, but you can't go around like sticking your hands under, under the blade and you have to chop slowly if you don't have knife skills. And I think again, um, the, the things that we're uh, able to do with AI, uh, again, it's just a tool that's based on statistics and some maybe some, 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 some uh, computing that we're, we're not completely sure what's going on in the background. Um, and I think in that tool, then what is the skill we need to do is we need to learn how to ask the right questions and use the tool in the right way. Um, so, so even all the way from when we are doing our economics and trying to understand like what, are, what, what sort of mechanisms are causing certain outcomes, we, we have to ask very important questions about are we actually getting the right data? Are we asking the right questions? Are we weighting things the right way? Are we, are we actually getting to truth by using this tool of statistics? And then I even think of you know, people who drive uh, these, these self-driving cars, right? That's a, that's a tool too, like it won't drive itself. We've seen like a lot of examples where it won't. And yet it might be a very helpful thing, you know, many cars now have these sensors that tell you, hey, someone's in your, your, your blind spot. Uh, that, that's the way the technology aids us to be, to perform better as, as humans. If we pay attention to it. If we pay, yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like that flashing light, I should, I should right, do something. Right, right. That's right. right. So, <laughs> so I, think, I think there's just, it's, it's both the practitioner 
side that has a responsibility, but also we as users have a responsibility to, to, to know how to use the tool in a responsible manner. Oh, thank you. Thank you all for that. Um, so we've, you know, we've been talking about AI and, and just how we're seeing it in the workplace, how it's impacting all of us, um, what, are some, what are the potential risks. But one of the questions that I'm sure many of us have in the room is around the AI and its impact on the job market. So, you know, if it's skills or um, just a need, like how do, how do we see that playing out or what are your thoughts on this? And we would like to start with Pooja. Um, yeah, I feel like uh, with AI, there's a lot more, and machine learning, there's a lot more uh, focus on skills that are uh, specific to data science, um, understanding information security, how to slice and dice data, how, how to make it, um, how to extract information from it. I think those skills are gonna start becoming more table stakes, or at least being able to understand um, from a higher abstraction level. From a job standpoint, I, I do not think that uh, it, there's gonna be a negative flow. In fact, I believe that there's new jobs that'll get created on how to best interact with technology. Like uh, you may have heard of prompt engineering. That's an up and coming field um, on how to, how to best build a language to interact with LLMs. Very recently, I wanna say in the past 10 years, MLEs, machine learning engineers, has become uh, uh, an entire job family. Uh, similarly, I do expect many different types of job families um, associated with large language models and data science coming up. Awesome. Mylene, do you want to add anything to that, or what are, you what are your thoughts around that, especially I'm, from I'm the a, education? I'm a big fan. I like, like, let me just give the example of ChatGPT. Like I spend a lot of time crafting my emails and it's like, you know, I got the basic thoughts, but all the words, and it's kind of amazing that again, right? I'm starting with the right content, the right data, which is, I know what I want to say. And then, you know, I don't do it on the Amazon laptop. So I'll make it secure, but, but then I You can, like as long as you don't use any proprietary okay, information. Okay, then, then for my, for my, for my thank you emails. Um, uh, then I use the chat GPT to like, fill in the words, it's much faster than I can do. And then I go, and then very importantly, I go back and I reread and make sure it's saying what I'm saying. So I think that's a huge time saver because a lot of my time as a manager is kind of doing all these communications. And, and for my employees, I think we're so lucky to, to work in a company that is so international. Um, and so there, and we're also lucky because English is, you know, is my native language and, and that's actually the, the lingua franca um, at least in the in headquarters, but for my international uh, employees, English is not their first language, and I know they spend and I just so admire that they do all this work and they spend extra time to make sure they're doing it in, in a language that I understand. Um, and what I told them is like, don't waste your time on sort of these hours to go over these things again. Like that, that's the power of ChatGPT. Just put your thoughts in. Again, let let sort of the English grammar stuff come out of this ChatGPT and. And then you reread it to make sure it sort of makes sense for what you want. Um, I, I think it's a huge time saver for one of our biggest assets, which are the people we have and the, the, the thoughts that they have. And I, I, I love the idea that they're not encumbered by having you know, grown up in a different background where they don't happen to speak the language that we use. So I'm, I'm big on you know, what, what we can do with 
So let, let me offer a couple of things here in the way of this, this conversation around skills and, and the workforce. I mean, I, it, it never writes what I want whenever <laughs> I try. And maybe it's just because I'm expecting like something really high order and it doesn't do that. So for me, um, I often go like, why am I fooling around? But I play with it because I have to as, as a matter of just understanding the technology. Uh, but what I will say to you is that, uh, to your point, um, what the World Economic Forum has done in terms of a study that was recently released about June of this year was looking at the future of the workforce. And what they have indicated in their projections is that, um, that we're going to see a net positive in the way of jobs. Now, that's not the same jobs. Right? It's just to the point that we were making that jobs are going to change. And with every sort of technological advancement, even if we go back to the industrial age, there, there was a shift in jobs right, with new technology. And so we should expect that. There's going to be a shift. But that also means that those of us that are working and are learning and are in positions to learn today have to think about, one, what do we do to, to remain relevant and to maintain marketable skills? And two, what things might we need to know in order to be able to compete in the workforce of tomorrow? And so we have to pay attention to that. So rote, re repeat, repetitive type of activities may no longer be the thing that you focus on. We may not need a, uh, a technician who can understand, a radiology technician, because they can read you know, uh, scans, because AI can do that and can do it faster and pull thousands of data at its disposal to be able to give you some suggestions in terms of diagnosis or output. Well, we still need a doctor, right, um, who is going to understand sort of the connection with the patient and the kind of care and be able to provide that. Um, we're going to need, and my belief is, and there, there's some debate about this, we're going to need highly specialized skill because you're going to be the one helping to frame and design the way in which we interact with the systems versus the rote repetitive tasks that will be augment, uh, automated away. And so we need to like shift some of our thinking in terms of the kinds of skills that we, we need to consider. But, but my admonishment is to folks that um, and this was in a study uh, by McKinsey a few years ago that talked about the shelf life of skills. So we go to school, we go learn something in education, and we think that we've arrived and we stop there. And with the shelf life of skills at that time, and this was probably four years ago, the last version of the study that I saw, they were talking about 18 months. You can imagine that that has been significantly reduced mm -hmm. because of the rapid advancement of technology. So we need to be in a mindset, mindset of continual learning so that we actually can remain uh, uh, um, relevant and competitive. And that means that you need to be thinking like what my skills are today, they're gonna be different. What we talked about in December of last year in terms of, um, and when I say we, the market, it, and industry was talking about in terms of the trajectory of things this year, completely changed by January because of chat GPT. And then we had to go back and revisit what was predicted and what we were expecting. And those things are evolving. So we can expect that our skills and the necessity for the kinds of skills that we need are going to be rapidly evolving too. And so you need to almost, it's requiring us to be much more vigilant in terms of watching the space, understanding what's happening and being ready to, to be nimble and adjust. Yeah, 
I'll just cap that off. I think that was the perfect lead in. What I was going to share is near, there's a physician shortage in the country. Nearly 50% of physicians say that they are burned out in their role and it's because of the administrative stuff that they can do. You want everyone, not just physicians, pharmacists and clinicians, but everyone to be taught, working at the top of that license, that license of education, what they've learned, what they've gained on the skills, not necessarily spending half their time doing things that they shouldn't be doing because that's what's gonna further us along. And that's where I see the job market really improving with the use of responsible uh, applications of this new tech, right? And this is no different than when iOS and then we had iOS engineers. Android came to be and then Android engineers. So these new skill sets are going to be required. There will be new job families, which is really truly an exciting opportunity for sort of the, the next generation. I think about my children all the time and what they're into. And I think about eight-year-old Bia and thinking about how can we make sure that everyone's passions at eight can become a reality for them in the future. And it's because we are enabling folks to do full days of what it is that they dreamt of doing and not everything else that they need to do that actually re leads to the burnout so they actually end up despising even what they thought that they loved doing right so letting the job be in the purest form and that's the most exciting part about some of these things that it enables yeah yeah well you've all really excited me one I think about I think one of the key things is really being a life learner but then two, how do we be more efficient and really plug into the things you really do enjoy and becoming experts in that space? So um, this is really powerful. So I'm really, I'm learning too, even as a moderator today. <laughs> um, so, you know, we understand there are myths about AI. Uh, are there any that we want to debunk for this group today? And we will start with Bailene. I think it's it's it basically goes back to the idea that AI is somehow going to be our future overlord. I think that <laughs> I think a lot of people are scared of AI and don't understand it. We we of course always fear the things we don't understand, but you know, as as Dia pointed out, I mean I, I think I think just by the fact of us being in this room and taking the time to attend this conference, I, I think you're all life learners is as Tiffany pointed out. And so as long as we have people who are interested and we are the watchdogs of what happens with technology. So so I, I actually am quite positive. So the myth that there's going to be some, some you know, evil that takes over the world that's based on AI. The robots are not going to kill us. The robots are not going to kill us, yeah. <laughs> I think there's too many of us who are, are like going to do the right thing and, and consider things like the ethics and the bias. And, and I think it's a better world. Anyone, anyone have Are you looking to me? I, you know, one of the one of the questions that always comes up, right, is, and it's, I'm amazed, uh, but I think it is the 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 fault of media that's actually created this because most of the movies and the TV shows that you all know of that talked about AI actually result in some robot going rogue and killing us, right? And 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 so I get that question every week. Right, that like, well, are they really going to kill us? Right, and and so to your point, now I'm not so sure that there's enough of us that are ethical because we live in sort of a capitalistic society where people are driven by money, and so in some ways people are going to drive towards wanting to advance and be the first, and and, and but we do need people that care, and 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 hopefully institutions and and or uh, enterprise that is thinking about their customer and customer obsessed enough to know that we actually have to put other 
things in place. But I, I do agree. And there are some real things for us to pay attention to and be concerned about. But the robots killing us is not the one. The people using the technology is. And, and, and to your earlier point, what we need in the way of education becomes so much more, so much more critical. Uh, one, just in terms of educating folks to understand and unpack our biases and where those things have an implication on the systems that we build, but then also doing the technical work so that we preserve and protect uh, the system so that they actually work and benefit us all. Just to add to that, one of the biggest myths I always see is that AI is only for the big companies. Only the big companies can afford it, can figure it out. They're the only ones that have these armies of people. But really, it's that diversity that's going to allow us to further this in the right ways. And so that it's not that the robots take over the world. It's not just serving a capitalist, um, you know, society or, or forms. And so it's really about making sure, and I think this is what Dia was talking about in her team, it's hundreds of thousands of customers and companies can use what larger companies are building as a baseline, as a foundation. Um, I was at a health conference earlier this week, and the majority of the companies there were small startups using AI or LLM or even the basic forms of ML to help simplify and bring more affordability, accessibility, transparency to healthcare. And so that's the right application. And if we have more and more companies figuring out how to leverage the technology, then uh, we're able to use it appropriately and make it available to everyone and not just those who are already very large. Thank you all. Um, so we're at the point in our discussion today where we can take, uh, we're open to hearing questions from from this audience. So there is a sweet mic that's at the front of the room um, that we encourage you to, to ask a question. If you're not comfortable with coming to the mic, you can try to do it from your seat and we will um, answer as best as we can. Um, we will try our best to answer any question um, that's asked, but if there is something that's either proprietary to Amazon or that we are just not legally permitted to say, uh, we will um, not not answer that question as well. So um, who would like to be the first brave soul uh, to come up? Awesome. And please state your name just so we get to know you. Good morning. Naisha Cox. Um, I serve in the military. I'm a warrant officer. Um, first of all, I want to say thank you, ladies, because I've met with Amazon, Microsoft, Oracle, Google. They don't send you. Um, this representation um, doesn't matter. Um, typically, I'm the only person in the room that can speak about large language models and birds and databases. I appreciate Amazon for the databases that they provide. So I bring all of that up to say you talked a lot about staying abreast of emerging technologies. As women, do you face a challenge of, I have this bright idea and I want to get it moving. And sometimes your initiative progresses a little bit slower than everyone else. And if so, how do you combat that? Or if you do know that that is a thing, how do you prepare yourself for that? So I'd like to share something. One of the things that I appreciate about our company is around this particular area. So we have this, um, culture that allows ideas to be generated, thinking big, not to be reserved to senior leadership, but that can be done by anyone. And I'm a testament to that because four years ago, I 
wrote a narrative, a proposal essentially, to bring forth an idea, which was what created our practice focused on responsible AI. And, 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 and so it wasn't so much, now I will say that it took me a while, just like a startup, if you were to think of yourself as a startup uh, a founder, you often have to shop your idea around to find the right partners Right, the people that believe in your uh, idea and your vision in order to be able to get the support and the financial backing that you need. And, and, and that's what I had to do at Amazon as well, that once I wrote this narrative with the, the data that I believed was sufficient to uh, prove that we needed to move into this space, had to find the right partner, right, the right leadership that was willing to buy into the idea. And, and for me, I didn't get discouraged because there were people that thought that we should do it and there are perspectives that were different than mine. And in our culture, we also, everybody has an opinion with all the brilliant people that we have. So they all wanted to tell me about what I should do and what mm -hmm. it should have, but to persist, <coughs> right? And use, and, and, and my grandmother used to say something, eat the meat, spit out the bones. That means take the information that's useful to you and the rest you throw away. And, and and be able to filter some of the recommendations and, and feedback that we're getting so that I could refine my plan, but also still feel like it was mine and present, present that to others. And it takes a bit of uh, tenacity and, and resilience, right, to continue to persist in the face of no's or I don't know's till you get to a point of having uh, the support, but but I believe that the culture at Amazon supported or provide a structure for us to do that right there in that big behemoth and create a, you know a small sort of startup that 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 we envisioned that I envisioned. I hope that helped. I'm just going to add a slightly different perspective. I think that uh, the, I've been at Amazon a long time and. Yes, I do think that if you persist, and we do have this culture, you write PRFAQs, and um, many of the programs that I've launched, Amazon Style, Amazon Local, were PRFAQs that I wrote and took up the leadership, and they were approved. So I feel like in my bubble, sure, everyone, everything is equal, but I don't think it necessarily is yet, obviously. Um, I see in my team now that I will have men will present a PRFAQ or proposal to me. And if I say, this is great, we don't have time for it right now, we can't prioritize it, they will bring it back every single week in a one-on-one, -on -one, <laughs> whereas women will not, right? So a woman will have a wonderful idea, especially women of color, I've noticed. And I will have to push them to say, hey, we talked about this idea about three weeks ago. And I told you then that it wasn't a priority, but I was kind of hoping that you'd maybe push a little bit more and maybe take my feedback and turn it into a different idea that maybe is something we can do in the near term. And I do think that that change has to happen. And that has to happen with more and more leaders, right? So we might find that it's working for me, so it's working for others, but that's not necessarily true. That's true, that's true. And I, I just wanna add, just in the overall space of diversity inside of tech and outside of tech, I do think we as women, especially women of color, have to be willing to be bold. Um, I know sometimes w that can work against us or um, that can be seen in negative context, but speaking like in organizations like Amazon, it can serve you well when it's done well. I mean, I wouldn't even say outside of Amazon, um, we sometimes are a part of our own barriers. And I, I'm by no means blaming anyone for societal systemic issues that have put us in this space. However, to get out of that space, we have to either look within ourselves to say, we have the voice. 
we need to feel encouraged and empowered to speak, one. And then two, for our fellow sisters, we need to be able to encourage them and we see those who might be shyer or not be willing to be outspoken or be or willing to even share an idea because of, you know, unbeknownst fears that may exist. But we almost have to be our own encouragers around that. And for our male allies in the room, I encourage you to also be that voice to say, hey, Tiffany, we've had a conversation or, hey, Tiffany, I, I saw in one of your docs or one of your presentations, you had this great idea. When are you ready to take this forward? When, so we need all those things, ourselves, supporters, and, our, and allies to really help uplift us all because we're all on a longer journey um, just because of the history that exists to really get to where we are, are comfortable being as bold as some of our, specifically our male counterparts. Thank you so much for that last part. So I don't have a problem with vocalizing <laughs> or speaking up or I actually love doing that part. Um, but during this entire conference, no one has ever said that part. And I've been waiting to hear it. We need our male counterparts. Yeah. Um, that is my success story, is that my male counterparts are like, oh, no, that's Naisha's department. You need to talk to her. And they will include me on that email and say, hey, did you hear this? Did you know that they were trying to do that's this? That's good. That so doesn't thank always you happen. for that. And I hope we can share that with our yeah. males in our community. And no, thank you. You're most welcome. No, thank you for that question, too. I think that's such an important part. All right, any other questions? I know there has to be more. Um, hi, my name's Haiti Batres. Uh, I'm a software engineer, and I'm actually just getting more into the machine learning side in my day-to-day -day work. Uh, this is a question for everyone, for me, particularly a statistics professor. Uh, I am wondering for myself and maybe other people, uh, when they're starting to get into machine learning, there is a big, uh, your base has to be pretty strong in, in statistics. What would you recommend in terms of, as I'm starting to go into more of that area of expertise, maybe some resources that could help maybe students who are before they graduate, or myself who I've been in my career early on, about two years now, but I'm trying to pivot into a more specialized role. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think there's there's tons of resources out there um, that you don't have to pay for. So I would say, to, like, try not to like put yourself into debt for any any schooling. As much as I, I I'm I, I'm an advocate of schooling, I think I think that you you start off learning stuff that you can get for free and like really figure out, hey, is this something I want to invest a bunch of money and time to? to go in and get a, a degree. Um, I do think sometimes the degree can fast track you in, in sort of the initial perceptions people have of your, it's a certification, right? Um, that said, I am, I, I think, it, I'll, I'll let my colleagues speak on this, I'm quite certain and I, even I have engineers who have built their skills on the job. It's not impossible and, and in Amazon, that, that doesn't serve as a blocker for them to, to sort of advance. Um, so there, there's one thing that I will offer, in, and, and and this is in particular when we start thinking about folks that are um, underrepresented uh, in industry. Uh, your degree is critical. We get measured by a different yardstick, right? And so having credential often it makes often can be a um, a tipping point or make a difference when you're being evaluated against others. Um, and I'll tell you, and, and I, I did this intentionally, and I, I know that I did, but when I was making a career pivot into AI, I went to MIT and took courses, and I went to Harvard. 
I did that on purpose because I wanted to make sure people didn't question my ability to be able to sit in that space because my background was not data science. Now I'm a computer scientist by background and training and have been working in industry for 20 years, but I had PhDs who didn't wanna listen, right? Because I didn't have, and so for me, the credential shut people's mouth because I went to MIT and to Harvard to go study in these particular areas of discipline. And so sometimes, right, even though you don't have to, sometimes it's helpful, unfortunately, right, to be able to put us in a better position because we're not often on same level playing field even though we have adequate skill, et cetera. So I just offer that. Now in the way of free uh, opportunities, um, AWS Skill Builder is a free online resource that we provided and released during the pandemic that has thousands uh, probably about a thousand courses at this particular time that offer people background and skill, both technical and non-technical across technology, um, starting off with cloud technologies. And it also helps to provide people the foundations for being certified across a number of different areas, including um, in our machine learning and AI. So that's something that's offered free that can give you some initial and, you know, perspective initial background and study. Then we have Machine Learning University, which is another that is much better for folks that have technical background and skill, and that is focused on machine learning. And so there are classes there for computer vision, um, for um, natural language processing. We now have something on responsible AI. So that's another source, and it is free offered by AWS. And I'm only talking about that because of the AWS stuff. I can tell you offline about other <laughs> things as well. <laughs> I have taken some of those classes and they're actually really great. So plus one to that, I also think the credentialing is really important, not just in this industry, it's really in any industry that this entire group faces. I mean, I go to these conferences and the first few questions I get are, are you a pharmacist? No. Are you a physician? No. Did you get an MBA? I'm like, I don't need any of those. I have the job, right? But those are the first questions that I receive every single time. And so, yes, I think it, it is just gets those questions out of the way, which unfortunately Unfortunately, um, to your question, how can you kind of step in a little bit faster? And I want to plus one on both what they're sharing around the credentials. I was in recruiting for many years prior to uh, being in the DEI space, and it is critical um, for women and underrepresented populations to have uh, have their their degrees, certifications, MBAs, doctorates. I can even share from my peer group of um, diversity, equity, inclusion practitioners, most of the people who are hired into Amazon have a minimum of an MBA, if not a PhD. Um, and so, and a lot of us are diverse. I would say most of us are diverse, whether it's from gender, ethnicity, or sexual orientation. And so I do think um, we're, we're still climbing that hill, I would say, of, of being treated fairly and, and to be competitive, having the credentials, it is critical, um, not just in your, when you're starting out your career, but as you continue to grow. Thank you all. You're welcome. You got great questions. Okay, who's the third person that I paid? <laughs> <laughs> Slash volunteer, volunteer. <laughs> Hi, I'm Smita, I work for Lidos, and I really want to learn, okay? I'm always like a life learner. I'm always looking for opportunities, but at the same time, I'm a mom, so I wanted to really ask you 
ladies here who are always learning and keeping up with the technology, how do you balance it and when do you find time to learn something new before we even know about something? It's changing, but I have to run around kids, take them to classes, cook, and do my job. I don't how sleep. How are you doing? <laughs> I don't sleep. That's how I do it. <coughs> what it feels like. I have three children um, and I agree with you. Sometimes it is learning with the kids. Right now, my kid, my oldest is 13 and a half and I feel like I'm relearning math all over again with him. Um, so that's part of it. But for me, it's always been learning on the job. And so kind of to the what I was saying before, I did get an MBA, but I feel like to the point of when, what's the shelf life of education? I've been learning for the last 20 plus years that I've been working. And that really has been my opportunity for learning. I'm learning every single day from the people that work on my team, the people I work with, the things that I'm building. Um, and that's, that's the learning. I do think that there's probably space to be made for that outside learning, that passion learning, and you do have to create the space for it. And that's where, um, and during your workday, not during maybe your personal time, right? Like you're not gonna take an hour of your kid's time to learn, it's rather, seven to eight in the morning or nine to 10 in the morning. What is that hour every single week, every single day where you're like, I'm just gonna read something. Here's a report that I put aside for myself. I have a, a Slack channel for myself <laughs> where I just kind of send things to myself that I wanna read when I have that little block on a Friday morning where it says work block on my calendar and I'm supposed to be probably doing something else, but I'm learning and I'm able to then apply it the next time. And the, the best reward for me is when I read something in my own own time and I go into a meeting the following week and I use it and I'm thinking if I hadn't read that I wouldn't have been able to contribute that and then it makes me even more inspired to do it more and more. Okay, I totally agree with you that we learn every day on the job. So whatever position, from every meeting that you come out, oh, okay, I learned something new from somebody else. So because of the virtual world as well, we are missing out on those things a bit, but it has its own advantage and disadvantage. I, I would tell you, I, I think it's actually challenging with the, and I said this in the other session, that we need to be lifelong learners. And because of the shelf life of skills, that we, we need to be actively um, pursuing more information because technology is rapidly advancing. But it is actually daunting. I think that's just to be honest, right? There's so much happening, at least from my perspective. I, I have this Google alert that sends me um, articles, every, everything that's been published at the day across uh, like AI, ethical, trustworthy, responsible AI. And because I'm trying to stay abreast of what's happening and I have certain keywords, it sends, there are, there are like tons of articles every single day being written, something else being published, some other research being done. There is so much. And it is actually daunting sometimes. So I do find for me, because the work day is so compact and I have two kids, teenager that's now looking at college and, 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 a, and a middle schooler. So, so I do find that it's been beneficial to steal away Right, like to actually go to a conference, to go and take another like little mini certification course, because it pulls me out of the everyday and allows me to focus on learning. Because I'm one of those people, I buy a new book every week because I'm like, oh, that's great, I want to read that, and I have a stack of books <laughs> that I haven't read. Right, Same. and so unless somebody like puts me in an isolated environment and gives me a little space, and 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 so maybe you know. It is, I try to do something like that on a quarterly basis so that I can actually just get away and actually be focused on a learning, you know, kind of thing. 
but but that, but it's 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 challenging because stuff is moving fast. It's moving fast. Yep. I I wanted to offer like a efficiency hack, although I'm not a mom, so. Uh, <laughs> I, I tend to use some of my mundane activities like laundry folding, driving, and listen to podcasts. To, and there are some very uh, top technologists out there who are leading podcasts. I think those, yeah. I use that as a way to stay updated. Audible. What's going on? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Audible. And on audiobooks. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're most welcome. And I just want to add to that. Um, I think it's just deciding to create time. I'm, I, I will say right now, I have three kids as well. I'm one who's four years old and he's running my household. And uh, I, I, I watch less TV and I'm not suggesting for anyone to give up their TV watching give time. Give up TV, I'm saying yes. <laughs> it's garbage, garbage. But I mean, that, that's, that's one way that I, I kind of create time. And also just to all the parents out there, we have to remind ourselves like we're all great mothers and fathers, but our kids will grow up. And so I encourage you all to take some time, even if it's not about learning, but take some time for yourself. If it's not on a daily, if not weekly basis to just breathe and do the things that you enjoy. And some of that might be continue to ex uh, expand your knowledge in whatever topic of choice. So um, I encourage you in that way as well. You're welcome. Any other questions? Oh, yes. I mean, this is fantastic. I actually, we had no doubt you all were going to have a question. So um, thank you for... <laughs> Although you didn't say that you you didn't pay for me, so. Oh, and I, I did pay you for sure. Um, I don't know if it's a question. Maybe it might turn out to be a question um, about we talked about responsible AI. So I'm a statistician by trade. Um, so on the board of garbage and garbage art, right? And when we, I'm from Corn Incorporated, sorry. So when we talk about when you create a model, there's a way you evaluate the efficiency or accuracy of the model um, for a period of time, right? Um, so in terms of responsible AI, right, you, you know, um, how are there systems or I guess like systems within Amazon that you work in creating, creating that, um, that leverages feedback from your customers on that aspect, right, from bias to safety? Um, um, privacy, et cetera, do you, what do, what do those systems look like? It, not so much just customer feedback, right, but is, is it something beyond that? Does that make sense? So, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So, so um, and I, I think there are a couple of things. I'll talk about some of the technology ones first, since you talked specifically about systems. Um, so we have a, a number of services on the AWS side that we actually provide to customers to help. So one of the things you described is sort of like monitoring and understanding the performance over time, mm -hmm. right? And evaluating that, the accuracy of a model over time, because we recognize that what we did in training is not going to necessarily be the behavior that we expect when it's right. in production. So we have something called model monitor that actually allows you to look at the performance over time, right? And watch that and monitor that monitor that based on certain factors so that you could see how there is change or drift occurring in the model and production. And when that is now being monitored, then you create a trigger 
so that you get notification of that and then can respond. What do we want to do? And then there's a bit of process that has to happen as well. What do we want to do when we notice that the change has, there's been a, an adjustment in accuracy? And at what threshold is that a problem such that we need to be retraining the model or doing something different in the system? So that's one of the things. We also have something called augmented AI, which allows us to create workflows that says if there is variation, Right? Or mm -hmm. if we get, um, if something is not at the right sort of threshold in terms of confidence when we're reviewing this, that we actually want to elevate that to some, a human for review. And so that's another system, right, that we have for structure. Now these are specific services that we provide to customers, but there's other ways to make that real, you know, in an organization that isn't using ours. That becomes process, right, and evaluation. But 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 there are things that, that you can do in order to um, to look at and evaluate model performance as well as when we start talking about bias, then we also have a tool that can look at bias. Uh, in the, the data set and evaluate that, as well as look at that in production um, in the algorithm itself. And we look at that across a number of different factors and features uh, that the customer can then sort of create levers, right? Which ones they want to pay most attention to, and then, um, and then again, respond or react. So we talk about creating if that feedback loop that you're referring to, mm -hmm. so that you have things that we do in training and evaluation, things mm -hmm. that we want to look at in testing, things that we will monitor as far as the performance and accuracy in production, and then a process with which we review those, right, that cycle, and if there is change that is not at the um, level that it's acceptable, then we, we make adjustments, right? And, and But that has to, there has to be a process around those tools. You yeah. can't just have yeah. that in place. You have to actually have now a structure that says, if this, what are we gonna do? How do we respond? Uh, what, what do we do with our system? And, and so all of that has to be a part of that. I hope that helps. Um, it does. How do you, for the model maintenance, I'm calling model maintenance, right? Um, how do you balance, these are discussions we have as well in Corning on um, when you deploy a model in production, you create a model maintenance structure, um, how much of it should be human triggered versus not, right? Because especially when if it's in a space that is where we're leveraging AI as a new technology, right? Um, there's, the, there's, the, there's the, I'm gonna call it fear of, should you just solely rely on a system and not have any human interaction, right? How do you balance or approach that, right? Do you say full AI and then, and then when something breaks, then you, then, you, then you go back and incorporate some human interaction or do you start the human interaction first and build, like do you have a Yeah, so, there's, so, so this has to be part of the approach in the initial design. Right. When we're first designing, we need to actually be thinking about like what, again, what are those thresholds? So when we talk about fairness, what is fair, right? How do we define fair for this particular application? Or, you know, what is the, what is the right sort of levels of accuracy across subgroups that we want to evaluate? And whenever that makes an adjustment, what is our process then? Is it at a threshold that allows us to, to then retrain the model? Is that easy, right? Can we retrain the model? What would be the remediation steps? That has to be part of the design. If we're not doing that in design, then we are kind of going rogue with systems that happen later. And I know that that does happen, but that's why responsible AI is now a discipline and a practice to say, part of your design process has to be these considerations 
and a structure that allows you the feedback loop necessary to improve when we know that things are shifted. Mm -hmm. And um, I'll, I'll let anyone else offer, but that, but that has to be like part of the initial planning process and design approach. Yeah, I just wanted to add on to Dia, but your point about it starts with design. And I think, um, and your name again? Claire. Claire, yeah. um, thanks for asking the question. I think it's really important in, in kind of the work we do. You also, part of that initial design is what is the final metric that yeah. you're working yeah. towards? And you, you work backwards from that. So I think it was your last step, like what is the, the thing we're monitoring? Um, and if you work back from that, then I think it helps you to determine, okay, well, what is that metric? Um, how does our strategy flow from that metric? And then what are the interventions we need to make sure, you know, in terms yeah. of how frequently do we need to look at that metric? Yeah, I want to add a little bit to what uh, Dia just mentioned, that sometimes you might realize the machine learning is not the solution to the problem that you're trying to solve. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. That's good. And, and then when you actually uh, think of the solution, sometimes you just build one model and just leave it be. Uh, and, and let it run for multiple years. Sometimes you don't even need to uh, retrain it or keep mm -hmm. uh, futzing with it. Uh, but some, some solutions actually require constant retraining with new information that comes in. So I think that's, that's the intelligence part in like the, the, the practitioner who designs the solution. Um, in that design process, it would be important to recognize when a model is a baby model and needs a human in the loop. And when has it reached a stage of maturity? That's where all of these model monitoring tools will come mm -hmm. into play. Um, there's an entire practice called MLOps, so machine learning operations. A shameless plug for Machine Learning University. They have an entire course yeah. on that. Um, okay. But there's a whole universe of tools that will allow you to uh, sort of keep an eye on what the model is doing and when it's going to need. And you can define at what point you want to intervene or when it's gonna need human intervention. So okay. you can have multiple humans in the loop doing multiple checks, or you can, you can let it run on its own. So I think that's the decision that the designer Based needs to make. Based on the system and yeah. The, yeah. The, the rate of change with the data and right. you know, all of that has to be factored in. Yeah, that's really good. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. You're most welcome. So we only have a few more minutes. I wanna give our panelists um, 30 seconds each to share any last parting words before we close out our discussion today. I'll kick it off. I, uh, I just think that this is a very exciting space for this group in particular. I love just seeing everybody here so interested in technology in the in the workplace, not just here in the session, but just overall at this conference. And um, I truly think it's foundational. It's not an industry, it's a foundation and it can be applied to anything. I mean, I've seen it applied from everything that I've worked in, in grocery to fashion to healthcare. I mean, these are very, very different industries, but the underlying uh, application and what it's been able to do for the consumer in all of these industries has been phenomenal. Um, I can go next. This is, uh, this is an advice that I got from my mentor who's had 20 plus years of experience, who said that in her experience at Amazon, she noticed that when men try to put themselves up for promotion, they're bold about it. And they don't really look at all the boxes that need to get checked for the next level, but are ambitious. And on the other hand, she's noticed that women tend to be overprepared for the next level. They want to make sure they check all of the boxes before they even think of themselves as candidates. So that was something that I wanted to share with this group because that hit me hard. 
And uh, I feel like my internal narrative was that I needed to earn my spot on the table. And I think I'm trying to evolve it to, I deserve a spot on that table and I just need to figure out a way to display that I do. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I think that's something that I wanna leave this crowd with. Yeah, I also wanna echo um, Pooja's point about don't be the first person to say no to yourself. Like let someone else say no. You, so Katie, apply to those those programs or, or any scholarships you need if you want to continue to go to school. Um, and, and the second thing is just that when you're trying for all these things, you are not alone. So um, I taught entrepreneurship. No entrepreneur succeeds alone. So Naisha, a great job in terms of getting your allies um, to work with you. And, and all of us should, should not think that we have to sort of prepare ourselves and, and apply to this and be alone. You ask for advice, you ask for your friends, you work your network on LinkedIn and get them to help you get those informal connections that are gonna get you interviews that put you just a little bit step ahead of everyone else in, in anything you do. Wow, so I, I got the last word. What would my last word would be? I, I guess mine is just to be an encourage, uh, to encourage you all. Uh, hopefully that there are folks in here that are interested, uh, certainly by being here, interested in these areas of STEM and in particular, um, and I hope that you all uh, explore um, and, and consider AI because we absolutely need more of you. Awesome. So thank you to you all as our audience. You've been amazing. I want to thank the amazing panelists and all that they shared. And really thank um, Women of Color for allowing us to be able to host this, um, this discussion today. And I will leave one last parting words for all of you is investing in yourself is one of the best investments you will ever make. So I want to encourage you to continue doing so because you've already taken that step by being here today. Have a great rest of your conference. We hope to see you soon. Take care. Thank you.